Today on Makers Cast, I talk Shakespeare, theater, and Marvel movies with composer and musician Natalie Bell. Welcome to this, the second episode of Makers Cast. We made another one. It's real. And I'm here with Natalie Bell. Hey. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. It's exciting. I'm pretty sure last time we saw each other, which is, this is going to be one of the cooler sentences I've ever said. Last time we saw each other was on the day of a solar eclipse. Yep. <laughs> the only one I've ever witnessed. Same. Yeah. It, we last saw yes. one another on day of black sun. Yep. Yes. Black hole sun. Uh, how Basically. many people were in the park? It was a lot of people. There were so many people. The place where we were, there was less people, maybe like 20 or something. But True. Dang, in the park. In the, the whole park, it was packed. Lots like, of humans. There were so many. And then I remember like even just down the street, like leaving the park after the eclipse was done. Mm. Everybody was just flooded on West End. Yeah. That was a cool time. I went back to work. I did too. <laughs> One of my friends watched it from the roof. Um, of where I work now, mm. but like on Music Row, they just all got on the roof, nice. watched the eclipse, went back inside, did work. Yeah, I heard of other people who saw it or like sat and watched it in smaller places. They were like, eh, it wasn't much. So I guess part of the effect for me was the like literally thousands of people and their dogs because Nashville. <laughs> of course. All house. like clapping and marveling at this thing. Yeah, it was yeah, pretty awesome. It was, yeah, like I remember when it started going down, you could hear like, oh, like in the distance, everybody yeah. was starting to freak out. It's, there was music playing. There was. That was all kind of related to the yeah, eclipse. That's true. It was a great. It was an event. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, if you had seen it in a smaller venue, that it mm -hmm. might have been not as exciting. But it was freaking exciting. It was really cool. That was cool. It felt like something was going to happen. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it was a great time. Yep. So, astute listeners will note by the following conversation, this is the second episode in a row of all two episodes featuring a music person that I met in college. <laughs> so, that being the case, how did you get to Belmont? Well, when I was applying for colleges, like someone mentioned Belmont early on, and mm -hmm. this girl ended up being my roommate um, junior and senior year. Huh. But she just was like, yeah, Belmont's the place for me. I was like, that sounds like a cool place. And then it just kept coming up. Yeah. And so eventually I was like, well, I think Belmont sounds pretty great. Mm -hmm. I'll do a safety apply to Appalachian State. Where's that? It's in the Appalachian Mountains. Like, between uh, here and North Carolina. Okay. Like, halfway through. Are you from North Carolina? Yes. What part? Raleigh. I didn't know. Uh-huh. My mom's from Raleigh. That's so funny. Yeah. Well, there we go. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a good time. I like Nashville better as a place to live. Sure. But it's a good town. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I did that. I applied to University of Michigan. I didn't get in. Mm. Awkward. But, <laughs> well, into the composition program specifically. Ah the school so anyways it just it seemed like everybody was talking about Belmont and the more I found out about Belmont I was like I think this is the right place their it's marketing team is really good very good just gotta point that out very good um and I did one campus visit and was kind of like yeah I think this I think this is the right place and so ended up going there and I remember it was kind of funny because I told my parents like 
I definitely want to do music composition as my major. And then you have to pick a performing area, like some, some way it could be either like commercial. So I imagine Joey did commercial guitar, Mm -hmm. guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyways. So like I, I play a couple instruments Mm -hmm. and so I had a couple choices as to what I was going to use my performance area and what I really wanted to focus and get better in and had not received a lot of formal training in was classical voice. Gotcha. And so I chose to do classical voice and my parents were like, dude, you played the oboe. <laughs> you could have gotten a scholarship. Why did you do, why are you doing voice? And I was like, I'll get a scholarship for voice too. I'm going to do it. And they're like, but everybody's a singer and you play other instruments. And, but it just, or piano, or, like I had a lot of options, but I really, and I, I stand by it. It was it just opened my eyes into a completely new way of thinking about my voice and my body and mm. singing and then also writing for voice. Right. Um, so anyways, I chose to do voice as my performance area and and then I ended up at Belmont. Mm-hmm. Got in, started schooling. Do you still play the oboe? I still play the oboe. How's that? I mean, it's a good time. I do. I don't like just whip it out. No. <laughs> You're busking with the oboe. Busking. You we just don't, play Ennio Morricone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For all those of you who don't know what he just referenced, it's the... Thanks, The Mission. Yep. It's, it's, you've heard it. You you've have. definitely heard it. It's been used in, like, inspirational commercials for years. You've right. probably never seen the film, and if you did, you fell asleep. I did not fall asleep. No, I did. Oh, well. No, I mean, that's not, it's more a dig on my attention span mm. than anything. Gotcha. That's fine. Yes. But, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. I just do play the oboe. I play the oboe. I play flute, mallet percussion, which is like xylophone, yeah. marimba stuff, piano. Probably, like, level of proficiency would be voice and piano, top. Mm. And I also play a little ukulele. Fun. Mm-hmm. It, literally a little one. A, a small, a small uke. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to mention that in my experience of high school band, oboe seemed like the instrument that has an immense difficulty curve of like, it's going to sound awful when you start, but when you get good, it sounds amazing. Right. Yeah. Right. It's I'm not saying that I, I would not say that I sound amazing on the oboe, but I sound fine. If you I sound good. I can hold my own. But like if you didn't give up or someone didn't forcibly take it away from you, you're a good oboe player. I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do remember when I auditioned for my church's orchestra, mm. The first sentence that the director said to me after I began playing, this is, I was a junior in high school. He was like, well, you don't sound like a duck. And I was like, great. Glad that I passed your very low bar. Did you, did any of your band directors have like awful dad band director jokes about various instruments? Um, oh, there's one, uh, one of my favorite guys that was i was actually really close with the entire like staff i was such a band nerd but Mm -hmm. also like they're just great people but anyways there's one guy mr strong and when i started playing the oboe he would come up to me and be like you know natalie you can't tune an oboe but you can tune a fish yep that's one of the standbys you can do that with i think any woodwind and it still plays as a decent joke yeah yeah oh man my (laughs) go-to Uh, that I recall is, what's the difference between an onion and an oboe? Oh, no. Nobody cries when you cut up an oboe. Oh! Uh, ah! and that's more of a roast oh, than an actual joke. 
It's a little painful. A little bit. But here's, how do you cut it? Well, I guess I played, my oboe was plastic. Oh, really? It was like a starter oboe. Mm. I imagine that it's a little bit like a Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Alan Rickman kind of thing. Of like, he <laughs> cuts your heart out with a spoon. Wouldn't you want to use a knife? That's the point. It hurts more. <laughs> God. Oh, man. If I was more of a Harry Potter person, we could start an Alan Rickman, like, reference quota, but that's not going to happen. Oh, gosh. I don't I don't know a ton of Alan Rickman quotes, and I can't even do that good of an impression. But I love Alan Rickman. R.I.P. Alan Rickman. So how, uh, one of the things that I'm aware that you've done last, within the last few years, is working with Shakespeare Festival. Yeah. How did that come about? That's a fun story. So the roommate who I mentioned earlier, that she was the one that was like, oh, it's great. Mm. Yeah, so we went to high school together. Ah. Her name's Megan. I love you, Megan, if you're listening to this. So Megan was doing a workshop with the Nashville Shakespeare Festival. And uh, for one of her scenes, there's, well... This is not a very commonly known fact for people that are not super big into Shakespeare, but there's a lot of lyrics that are meant to be songs in his works. Like, every play has many, many, many. Even Romeo and Juliet, but, like, a lot of times they're not used because everybody will make their own cuts. Anyways, but this one scene she was in had to she had to sing something and so she one night she just brought it home and she was like i have to make up like a melody for this song and i was like can i make up a melody Mm -hmm. she was like i didn't even think of that yes for sure Mm -hmm. and so i made her a melody to go with her song and she brought that into the workshop the next day and the director was like huh that's cool and she's like yeah my roommate's a composer and he was like you should uh bring her to the workshop (laughs) i freaked out when she told me that, because I was like, huh, yeah, sure, uh-huh. So, uh, next day I just came to the workshop and was just kind of observing and hanging out and just talking a bunch with the director, and we just, like, we hit it off really well. It seemed like we thought very similarly creatively, mm-hmm. which was just exciting and yeah. fun at yeah. being a, I had just finished my junior year in college, and so I was to the point where I was starting to be like, okay, what am I going to do? So anyways, the next day, he messages me on Facebook and was like, so I am directing Romeo and Juliet for Nashville Shakespeare, not this January, but the January after. So it'd be the January after I graduate. Mm. He's like, and I really want, I want to create a fusion with the music of 90s grunge and Renaissance. And I was like, I'm in. I'm in. So this would have been one of the shows that was at the Belmont Theater. Correct. In the winter. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I saw that one, but now I really wish I had. It's, it was, oh my gosh, it was so fun. And so like for the, just to test it out, he gave me a couple songs and he was like, if you could just turn me in like a 30 second to a minute sample of what this would sound like arranged with that, um, with a Renaissance feel in mind. Mm-hmm. And of course, like that's for me, I, I feel like I'm just as much of an arranger as I am a composer mm. in that I love taking, I love taking music and seeing what it can be in a different light. Sure. I think that's one of the most fun things we can do mm. as musicians. So I just love that. And, um, what that ended up sounding like is so grunge music. I wasn't actually very familiar with it before. Doing this it project, it, it, it's there. Yep. Um, That's about all I know as well. It's um, 
Of course, the vocals are very like, like this, <laughs> bring your friends. It's a really bad Kurt Cobain impression. But anyways, we got that. We've got some chugging along electric guitars, obviously drums, um, but it's very guitar driven. Mm. And the thing about Renaissance music is that the lute was like one of the main instruments in the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And so their music was also very, quote unquote, guitar driven. Exactly. So what it ended up sounding like was kind of, I took Renaissance instruments. So I took a cello. Well, that, that's not technically a Renaissance, Renaissance instrument. It would have been a viol, mm. but um, I digress. So I uh, got a cellist, uh, and these are all Belmont people too, mm-hmm. a guy who plays the lute. And um, a percussionist that just did a bunch, he was on drum set, but he also played like tambourines and like all these different like little percussion things. And then I was on the keyboard and um, singing. It kind of, we created more of like an, like an ambient sound using those instruments. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of, um, if you're familiar with Vitamin String Quartet, they, okay, well, you should definitely look up their stuff. It's okay. great. But they will take pieces and they'll do it just, they'll take common pop songs and do them for just a quartet sound. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of, it feels a little bit like that. It's crazy how well some of them were. I think they all worked really well, but some of them you would just listen to and then you would listen to the original and be like, whoa, whoa, where did that come from? But the melody lends itself to be able to be done in a more ambient style, more lyrical. So that was still to date one of the coolest projects I've done. And it forced both me and it was it was this director's. He had just moved to Nashville. So it was his like first directing experience with the Shakespeare Festival here. Mm. And so we both were kind of coming in with this like a lot of energy and a lot of like, well what can we do? Like how far can we push the boundaries mm. and that type of stuff. So that's how I got involved with the festival, and um, I've still done most of my work with this one director, but ever since then, I've done... So, technically, the term would be sound design, mm. and that just means, like, anything sound-related for the theater. So, that includes sound cues, like, if they need a gunshot, yeah. or... off-screen action kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So, I'll be doing that, too, but for what I do, it's much more of a score, mm. So, like, in the same way you would score a movie. It's like an underscore, it lays low. Sometimes there's a song and dance number, and then I get to take lyrics and make them into songs that are appropriate to the style that the director has chosen, which mm-hmm. is not always Shakespearean, right. which is also a very fun thing. Yeah, because that's something that Nashville Shakes seems to try and do a lot, is infuse it with something maybe more familiar to yeah, the audience. absolutely. What I didn't know... and kind of coming into this big world of um, Shakespeare, live Shakespeare, especially Shakespeare in the Park, that's actually something that's done kind of all over the world. Mm -hmm. Like, I would say probably half, if not more, productions that are done are not set in Shakespearean garb and, you know, that type of stuff. You're still speaking the same language, but a lot of these productions are done in a more contemporary style. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Shakespeare scholars... Uh, are of the mind that that's what he would have wanted in terms of yep. like, like that he would have wanted it to be timeless and updated continually is something that was brought up uh, in my Shakespeare classes in, yes. at Belmont. Right. I think one thing like that just goes to that point even more is he was writing 
plays that were Greek tragedies, mm-hmm. Roman epics, timeless love stories set in different places. It was However, on an island for every reason humanly possible. True. Also, shameless plug, go see The Tempest if you're in Nashville. It's mm-hmm. coming up soon. I didn't work on it, but heard good things about it. So anyways, and Pericles, both of them. Um, but when he had his plays performed and the language that he was using, he was not trying to make it sound like how the Romans would have spoke. And they were not dressed in what he thought the Romans would have been dressed as. And they were not using idioms in their language that sounded really ancient. Mm-hmm. They were using everything was was contemporary. It's like if someone wrote a play right now about Julius Caesar and had everybody in just normal street clothes and they were talking like normal Americans and almost like you're hearing names that you, that you know are ancient, mm-hmm. but it's like in the modern world. That's how it was for Shakespeare's day. Yeah. And it was pushy and it was edgy and it was like for, for that time. And a lot of people, um, of course there's a lot of, there's a lot of pushback Mm -hmm. to that, but it was also one of the things that made him so popular and so revolutionary Mm -hmm. for his time. So yes, I think Shakespeare festivals now that still do the same thing or what I, I love the idea of, For example, I worked on a production in summer of 2017 that was The Winter's Tale, which is one of the most fairy tale-like of his whole things. Very messed up fairy tale. But, I mean, mean, if you've read Brothers Grimm, they're all all pretty messed up. up. Um, So, anyways, a fairy tale, but um, the director wanted it set in 1800s South America. Cool. Yeah. Which um, is a very interesting political time because there was like the Spanish there that were in power, but then there was a ton of native people that have been living there. And in this play, Shakespeare's play, there's like two worlds. There's like the high royals, and then you see the daughter of like the prince, the lost princess, grow up in what they call Bohemia. But it's like a you know wild pasture land like up in the mountains Mm -hmm. that type of thing and so so that's we we did that we did like the court was like the spanish royalty in bohemia was like the mountains they've got their llamas and you know pan flutes and that type of thing which is a completely different culture Mm -hmm. than the spanish um, colonization so like we made the play that is so malleable fit in that time period, and then my job as the composer is to further establish the setting mm-hmm. through the music. So I got to write things that sounded more Spanish and things that sounded more Incan or just like Andean in the mountains and stuff like that, and show the audience where we were based on the music. Right. And just have that be one more thing that kind of like brings the audience into the story mm-hmm. and into the setting of the story. Yeah, to the point of Shakespeare being, like, artistically pushy, mm-hmm. he started getting weird toward the end. Because I, I think <laughs> Win- Winter's Tale and Tempest are sort of, like, the the co-end of the canon mm-hmm. in, in terms of timeline. Mm-hmm. And both of them are tragic comedy? Because mm-hmm. not everyone who should theoretically turn out okay turns out okay in mm-hmm. those plays. Tempest, right. Tempest is more comedy than tragedy, and Winter's Tale is more tragedy than comedy. Mm-hmm. But they both end up okay? Well, better than not. Yes. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Yeah. 
interesting, very interesting to mm-hmm. go around. But, you know, I do think there's something to be said for, like, specifically in Winter's Tale, the king has done some really, really sketchy stuff. Yep. And... It's not like he everything just like ends up working out for him immediately. Mm-hmm. Like they do a flash forward sixteen years, and like he's kind of been depressed and in mourning, regretting all the stuff that he did sixteen years ago. Like for that entire duration, which is his daughter's whole life, you know. And so, like there is something to be said about forgiveness and repentance Mm -hmm. in those plays and like kind of how we process who we should forgive or who we deem worthy of forgiveness so i I do think that's there's something to be said about that yeah and that's so much of the space where this is a specific specific (laughs) something specific to theater particularly with plays that are old whether decades or centuries is that because they're done again and again by so many different people, you can interpret them in new ways yeah. and like emphasize different parts yep. and add like blocking and uh, sure. other things that will totally alter that. Yeah, and it's- draw connections to current things. Mm-hmm. Like I saw this one on, if you look on YouTube for, oh gracious, I want to say it was in South Africa, but it was a production of Julius Caesar in um, South Africa, or maybe it was just in London, but they purposefully cast South African actors. But they, through the costuming and through, um, like, the set design and everything, they were drawing parallels to apartheid. Sure. And, like, so they were using themes that were present in there and struggles that were relevant in Shakespeare's time and making them relevant to another thing. Mm -hmm. And you're like... And then also, it's fascinating just looking at human history and remembering that we've had these same questions for thousands of years. Yeah. Hundreds of years. There's definitely, I think, two major things that make Shakespeare as still relevant and timeless and global, despite being uh, writing in English. Right. Which is the closest thing we have to a global language, but even so, it's performed not in English in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. It's how beautiful language is, for one thing, but that's secondary, I think, to the fact that it was so intentionally human stories. Yeah, yeah. And, like, universal stories. Very much so. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, in the same way, I remember the first, I guess, work of theater or film that I consumed that did the, this isn't, this this well-known character isn't who you think they are, was Wicked. Oh, my. Which... There's, you know, plenty, plenty more. That's been a trope for a long time, but mm-hmm. it's also been a trope since Shakespeare. Like, so, like, the most recent thing I did with the National Shakespeare Festival was um, Julius Caesar in January, and Brutus, who, you know, stabbed Spoiler. Caesar. <laughs> Sorry if you haven't read history. Or heard at Tuber's A or seen everyone's weird Tumblr posts on the Ides of March. <laughs> you know, in case you haven't done that, I'm sorry, I ruined it for you. It's my fault. Really, I'm the only one to blame. But um, in that play, you leave and there's a strong case for Brutus's like justification of his actions. And like he very much believes that what he's doing is right. And it's like left up to the audience to see like, was Caesar a tyrant? Mm -hmm. Is Mark Antony just being manipulative? Is Brutus like, you know, trying to do what he thinks is right in the only way and it breaks his heart mm-hmm. to even 
do it. And like, it's just, you know, you come into the theater and you're like, okay, Brutus, the bad guy. Right. And you leave and you're like, I don't know who the bad guy is. Am I the bad guy? I'm probably the bad guy. We're, we, the audience. Darn it, Bambi, you did it again. Honestly, though, here's the, here, well, I say, <laughs> I say we, the audience, but in that play, it actually kind of is because the people and like the audience is kind of a little bit of a part of that in a lot of productions, but the people are the ones that switch loyalty like every two seconds. Brutus gives a speech defending why he killed Caesar. Mm-hmm. And everybody after that is like, yeah, Brutus, yeah, we're going to give him a statue. Oh, man, he's so great. We like, Brutus should be Caesar. <laughs> and then Mark Antony comes up and gives his French Roman countryman speech. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's like, we're going to kill Brutus. We hate Brutus. Yep. Like, and like throughout the play, you see the people switching sides they're so easily manipulated and then together as a swarm they you know enact chaotic change and war and stuff yeah and it's weird because the the shakespearean monologue and particularly the the shakespearean aside mm-hmm. is such a space of honesty yep cuz that's Absolutely. where that's where the dastardly dicks are going to say I'm going to mess stuff up. Right, exactly. Like, exactly. That's your Iago space. Uh-huh, for sure. Or, um, so, in Measure for Measure, um, there's this whole thing where uh, this sweet girl who's a nun is going to a town official to beg for the life of her brother. So she comes to him, and he's a much more powerful man than she is, and she's a nun. She's supposed to be, like chased and Mm. not with anybody and he's like yeah i will be happy to set your brother free if you'll sleep with me Mm -hmm. and she's like uh no no No, you misread this situation i'm in the habit of being in a habit oh it's a pun um that was actually (laughs) so bad it was so great Uh, anyways but she yeah, so she's like, excuse me, no. And then she's like, also, I'm going to tell everybody in the town that you just said that to reveal what type of a man you are. Mm. And his famous line to her is, who will believe thee, Isabel? Okay. Yeah, and he, and he starts he starts um, monologuing on how good his reputation is, mm. and no one's going to believe her. And in fact, if she says something, he'll just kill her brother anyway and will ruin her name saying that she's lying about him and everybody will believe him. Mm. And it's like, oh, oh, that's pushing buttons. Yeah. And Shakespeare is trying to push the buttons, mm-hmm. I think. And, you know, in even Midsummer, there's like this whole theme in the beginning where Hermia is engaged to Demetrius. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't want to be. She's like, I'm literally in love with this other guy who's a great guy, Dad. So uh, can I not? And then and the dad takes her to court. Yeah. And... And the Duke is like, yeah, you have to marry him or else you'll die. Mm-hmm. And so, like, and that whole, and then, you know, antics ensue. But Shakespeare in that in that play is putting a very strong, like, arranged marriages should not be a thing. Mm-hmm. And there should not be a legal penalty to, like, saying no to a engagement. And, yeah. like, ugh. And even though Shakespeare was part of a burgeoning modern world where arranged marriages were going to become less and less of a thing anyway, sure. that's still a window into gender roles. Exactly. Yeah. Like, it's still another venue into that. And that's right. why one of the coolest things that we kept hitting on in my, like, single author Shakespeare class mm-hmm. was the use of 
space and like what spaces these characters occupy because mm. by so frequently leaving the town and entering the wilderness like Ooh. in as you like it or uh midsummer or midsummer or king lear the tempest yeah and kind of everything by removing yourselves from society the women can speak up Ooh. and particularly if they're cross-dressed they can speak up yeah but yeah it that's was, fascinating like, yeah there are obviously schools of thought of what how feminist he was or wasn't. Sure, of course. But this many hundred years after the fact, if you read them and go, oh, that seems clear. Yeah, exactly. The results speak for themselves, even if the man didn't. Right, yeah. right. I, I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd like to back out of that bubble for just a sec. Yes. Um, did you have much Shakespeare experience before getting with... Uh, Nashville Shakes for this purpose. I did not. See, that was my question, because now it seems like you're really... I'm in, in it! I in love it! I love it so much! It's so cool, and it's, mm-hmm. it's very invigorating. Yeah, I really didn't. I mean, I read, I think, just as much as probably anybody in high school, but even... I I don't know. There's this... I don't know. I've had the same feeling in reading Shakespeare as it has... When I read Shakespeare now... I can see the story and I can see the characters and like what they're actually trying to say Mm -hmm. or like as opposed to I think in high school I was just reading the words and all the these and thous and like none of it felt personal in any way Mm -hmm. in any way at all but then if you were to just like look at even just a translation like a no fear Shakespeare or whatever that type of thing Mm -hmm. but to think of what the characters are actually trying to communicate. Yes. And when they're using slang, they're like, you know, how, what does that mean? And like... All of the sex euphemisms. Right. <laughs> All of them. There's so many. So many. There's so many. But like, that's, and then just, and then when you strip away the language that we don't use anymore, you just see a character, you see a person, mm-hmm. and you see a reflection of people that lived 500 years ago and that are very similar to us now. And yeah. there's just something that's just intriguing and heartwarming about that to me like as the one kid in my classes in high school well one of like two hi charles who who actively really enjoyed shakespeare Mm -hmm. even at in our first experiences in high school i'm of two minds because i'm an english major with some theater in my background yeah so these were written to be seen or at least heard so you can get an intonation oh yeah but by studying the text, you get how amazing the language is. Right, exactly. But I Absolutely. feel like your first brush in high school should probably be to see it. I very much agree. And it's incredible. Like, one of my favorite things that we do at Nashville Shakes is that we bring in a bunch of, like, schools. It will, it will, mm-hmm. refill, it was, it will fulfill some of their English requirements, I believe, to see this. Mm-hmm. But, like, they'll come in and it will be multiple schools all packed in 10 a.m. Uh, Tuesday morning and we get to perform it for them and we have a talk back every time afterwards and a lot of them will will get very like some of them are like from art school so they're like so into it and then other kids are from like ye old public school and like they don't really care about literature it seems but they're so they get so into it and they get into the fight scenes yeah. and like they can after a little bit like, even if you don't understand all the words that are being said, you can amalgamate what they mean mm-hmm. through the acting. Yep. And then you can see who's crossing who and, like, what they're trying to do and, like, all this stuff and see, like, the little plot line and, mm-hmm. and see when something's going to go terribly wrong, you know? So it's like so fun. Sword fights and right. Elizabethan 
like slam poetry kind of stuff. That, that's the closest <laughs> equivalent I can think of because there's so really? many back and forths. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. But yeah, they get, if I had seen a production, especially like one that we do where it's like very modern, modernized in, um, or just, just authentic to a style, whatever that stuff, if it's supposed to be the Kennedys, if it's supposed to be 1800 mm-hmm. South America, I feel like Nashville Shakes does an incredible job of just staying in that world mm-hmm. and it becomes that. So anyways, um, like if I had seen that type of thing as a high schooler, I think I would have understood yeah. like what it, what it meant mm-hmm. and it would have been like, oh, so cool they were thinking this way 500 years ago yeah. and before then, you know. Yeah, and I had a little Shakespeare experience before high school because I'm from just south of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And there's a thing in Atlanta. Uh, if anyone is in Atlanta, check this thing out if you can while you're there. Uh, it's called Shakespeare Tavern. Ooh. It's Shakespearean dinner theater in downtown Ooh. Atlanta. Like They have a dedicated space where it's like a repertory of Shakespeare and a couple other things throughout. Like they do an annual Christmas Carol show. But it's... Nice. It's Shakespeare theater basically all year round, and there's food. And so I, like, campaigned with my high school English teacher. Like, we, they're do, we're reading Macbeth. They're doing Macbeth. Oh, my god! We can get a student rate. We should go see it to see if my classmates actually care. Yeah. And half of them did. Hey, that's half. I think. No one, none of them are probably listening to this, so they can't, you know, prove me wrong. True. Yeah. But still, that's but still. so cool. And I think that's another thing, like, and that... Um, like the directors I've worked with are big on like on the education side like mm-hmm. these were plays they are marvelous works of literature but first and foremost they are plays yeah. and so they're meant to be performed and they lose something if you can't see you can't hear the tone of voice in which someone would say something or yeah. like you know see it right before your eyes and particularly now in a like post-Hollywood world of, mm-hmm. like, where we have a lot of filmed adaptations and filmed versions of stage versions. Sure. There's another layer because, like, Shakespearean plays were written with a lot of language and to be acted kind of big mm-hmm. because you have no amplification and the people watching it may be way across the building. Sure. So it has to be clear from over there. Right, absolutely. But now in filmic versions, you can get that as well as a lot more subtle versions. Absolutely, yeah. Which can be very, very rewarding, too. But obviously, if anyone listening to this hasn't broached Shakespeare and doesn't really know where to start, first place I would recommend would be if your city has a Shakespeare festival, Mm -hmm. because that's good to support and just, you know, community theater's great. If they're in the park, sometimes it's free, offices. So you can see random bats flying everywhere. Oh, so funny. I love it. <laughs> but, oh, that's um, lovely. To that point, other than that, is there any version, like a, particularly a filmed version, that you've seen that you would recommend as a, a sort of Shakespeare gateway? Ooh, honestly, not. Which is sad, but I will say a lot of the reason I haven't like watched a bunch of stuff is because I know these plays because I've done them. Right. And when I watch something, I'll absorb stuff very quickly Mm -hmm. and so I actually avoid watching them because they're all scored so I don't have a predetermined concept of what the music should be. Um, I'm very interested to see how Ophelia turns out because that came out like that was premiered like over a year ago at Sundance and it's yeah man I know and it's just like starting to circulate now. Uh, For context that's Daisy Ridley Mm -hmm. right in a like Ophelia focused version of Hamlet essentially. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
I'm, I mean, I'm here for it. Yeah. I'm here for it. Like, that. one of my favorite things, I, at some point we'll get off of Shakespeare. I don't care if we don't. But uh, <laughs> I, at some point I will get off of mentioning that one Shakespeare class I took in college. Have you met Dr. McDonald at Belmont? Who's like the Shakespearean? Yeah, yeah. She, yeah, she actually introduces all of the student plays here. She's lovely. Yeah, she's great. Marsha Mack. But in uh, her class, a uh, project that we could do, I, I forget it was if it was extra credit or like a portion of one of our other group projects, was to try and take a Shakespearean play of one genre and try to make it another. So like turn a tragedy yeah. into a comedy. That's interesting. Yeah, so by Whoa. using the conventions of one, alter it to be the other. So mm-hmm. me and two of my fellow English majors in that class turned Hamlet into a comedy. Oh, that's funny. It was something. Do you have to use the same script? No, gone. It's just like, how would you change the story? So like an Mm. outline. I see. Yeah. So we made a really crappy like PowerPoint slideshow with stick figures of like how it would be altered. It was very enjoyable. Wow. Essentially like Ophelia doesn't actually die. She cross-dresses to accomplish something that I forget because you have to have cross-dressing. Of course. You have to end in a wedding, so I assume Hamlet and Ophelia got married. <laughs> I forget what the rest of it was, but it was, like it was an interesting exercise. That's so interesting. Yeah. Oh, but well, uh, before we move away from that, because I do want to point people towards Shakespeare if humanly possible, I've been told that the David Tennant and Catherine Tate Much Ado About Nothing is on YouTube. <gasps> What? Yep. Oh, So that's great. The 90s Much Ado with Denzel and Keanu Reeves and Emma Thompson is really good. Joss Whedon's version of Much Ado is really good. That fascinates me. Did you watch it? I haven't, but I heard your friend talking about it. That's so funny that he did that. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently they shot it within like a couple days. Yes. So there's a lot of weird context around that movie. For anyone who may not know, Joss Whedon... Uh, creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Firefly, so on and so forth. Directed. It has Phil Coulson from Marvel in yes, it. Yes, because he directed uh, Avengers 1 and 2. Right. Yeah, uh, Avengers and Ultron. So I think I think it was around the time of Avengers 1. I that, think you're right. Yeah, is he regularly, Joss Whedon would just get all of his actor friends that he casts over and over again, who are his friends, to just come over to his house and read Shakespeare for fun. It's just a thing that he would do. I love it. And one time he told them, hey, I think I'm going to film it this time. <laughs> and they didn't know what to expect. Is, is this just like Joss with a camcorder? So they show up at his house for a weekend, having prepared much ado about nothing, which might be genuinely the gateway Shakespeare. It is so fun. It's a very fun and easy to understand play. I think comedies are honestly the best gateway. I agree. I very much agree. But uh, they got there and saw, like, lighting setups and people holding boom mics and went, oh, we're filming it. <laughs> and, but because he had been working on Avengers, that's why, like, Coulson's in it. And, uh, oh, God, I forget her name, but uh, an incredible voice actress who I think is on Critical Role, a D&D podcast, occasionally. Uh, who, she was the waitress that Captain America saves at the very end of Avengers. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking the about. The blonde, yeah. Yep. She's in there. What? As well as, like, some Buffy alums and people. How funny. Yeah. Ooh, more random Avengers trivia related to Joss Whedon. Uh, the dude who's interacting with Loki for the entirety of Avengers 1, the Two Thumbs guy, the emissary dude who is working for Thanos. Yes. Him. That. Oh. Hmm? He's in this? He is uh, an actor named Alexis Denisoff. 
who is Joss Whedon's best friend, who is, like, from Buffy and Angel. Aww. And he just was like, I'm going to play this weird two-thumb guy. <laughs> and then he was the lead in Much Ado. But, yeah, it's, it's a really so interesting version because it, it it is modernized. It's featuring a lot of, like, Firefly and Buffy alum, if anyone's interested in those actors, like Nathan Fillion and his lovely face. <laughs> But he taps into some interesting things in the text that I hadn't seen before, which is one of the other neat things about adapting Shakespeare, is there's so much text, and there's so much interpreting of that text, you can do something new that isn't wrong. Yeah, so, so like, true. Something that I had never seen in my many viewings and readings of Much Ado, particularly, that they did in that version. You've read the play, obviously, not a spoiler. I've actually, I've done the play. You've done the we play. We just did it at yeah. Peterbug. Oh, nice. Yes. We should talk about that, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, is they there's this one line that intonates that the the leads for people who don't know Beatrice and Benedict have had a relationship previously. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And no one hits on that, and right. he did, and it was great. Right. Yes. Yes. I know exactly. Yes, I know exactly the line you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like two hearts for my single one. Yeah. But, and sometimes there's that one line that changes so much. Right. Like exactly. There's, there's one line buried in Othello that makes Iago, I think it's a line, something to the effect of Iago thinks that Othello cheated with Iago's wife, and that's why he hates him in addition to being racist. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Mm. Not great. That's not great at it's all. Not, not yeah. at all great. I don't see that one touched very often, but you may interpret that line differently. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I love those. Mm-hmm. I love the freedom that that allows. Yep. That's but, so cool. But yeah, moral of the story, check YouTube, check PBS, because I watched uh, Ian McKellen do King Lear for free on PBS. Oh! <sighs> that Man. was something. Man! So, so Theater Bug. Theater Bug. Would you like to explain Theater Bug to the listener? Uh, the Theater Bug is a fantabulous theater company that is geared towards teenagers and children mm-hmm. in or Northeast Nashville. Currently, they've been in a different place, but um, they specifically do musicals and cast um, people in the roles that are, they're playing the ages that they actually are, essentially. And it is so fun because they're, you know, of course, all of us that went through high school doing theater, you did Annie and like a high school senior played the 50-something Mr. Warbucks. Yeah, all and the then, age makeup and bald caps Exactly. are hard. It's just kind of hard to watch. Yeah. And there's this level of authenticity that's stripped away. But when teenagers are performing as teenagers, mm-hmm. first of all, I think they can have a little bit more fun. And they can bring their own energy yeah. to it because it's a little bit more familiar. But also, like, um, the theater bug... When they're not doing Shakespeare, they will honestly, I think most of their shows are written by um, the artistic director, Corey mm. Lamel, and um, I think a lot of their music is by Lauren Batula, and they'll team together and create like a musical or just a play with a little bit of music mm. that is centered on issues that the teens are facing, but Mm -hmm. in a very palatable and usually hilarious and uplifting way. But like they've done and just, just fascinating. Um, they, there was one they did called seven ways to Sunday, which is about a girl who has the superpower of foresight 
uh, she also has depression. Mm. And so the, at the beginning of the musical, you know that she says she's seen something that's going to happen and she wants to prevent it. And you see throughout um, her, and she can live the same day over and over again. Mm. And what she's actually trying to prevent is her suicide. Yeah. And she, um, it is crazy how well they're able to dive into these subjects mm-hmm. in such an authentic way. And they're about like it's a it's a high school senior yeah. that this is that this play is about. Mm. And um, but still, they can throw in so many laughs and so many like happy cries. Gracious me, it's yeah. so good. The ability of people who are like college and up to be able to tap into like either a kid brain or a teenager brain is one of the most impressive things to me. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I think we've gotten a lot more of that in the kid brain recently because I watch a lot of cartoons and mm-hmm. finally it feels like unlike you know, uh, early 90s and before when cartoons were made by uh, committees of middle-aged men right. who thought this is what kids are like. Exactly. People are making cartoons and things for kids going, what would I have liked? Exactly. And, and just yeah. remove all of the 80s references. Right. That's all you have to do, because kids are still kids. Right. And it's the same thing with teenagers, but yeah. we, we try and block out a lot of teenage years because, boy. They're uncomfortable. They were not great. Let me also add that right now, teenagers are really cool. It's really sad oh, yeah. how cool they are how, in comparison to how uncool we were. <laughs> like, we were bad. <sighs> Here's the thing. I, I am not one to jump into the deep, deep waters of understanding the sociological implications of social media. Well, but... But I think that the fact that the only view that we as 20-somethings have on teenagers is their, like, Instagram and Vine, we see the parts of them that are really cool, that are real. Right. They are really cool. But we're not seeing the awkward parts that they have to go through. That's true. That's very true. Which we must empathize with because, boy, it's a time. It's a time. Yeah. What time? Related, because I like bringing this up with people. Did you read Catcher in the Rye? You know, I did not. Okay. I didn't... Sorry. No, that's fine. I didn't read it until college, just of my own volition, because I had never read it. And I get why people hate it. What is it about? So, it's about this, like, mid-teens boy, I think he's like 14, 13, Mm -hmm. who is at a boarding school because it's of that era of literature. Sure. And he just sort of wanders around like from cab to cab in New York, hanging out with usually people older than him because he's trying to feel cool and be like, yeah, I'm I'm cool. And it's interesting because he, his aesthetic is that he hates fake people. He hates posers. I've turned so many people off to this by bringing up Catcher in the Rye. Because people <laughs> hate this book. And But here's why you hate this book, people. I would say, probably. You read it in high school when you were a similar age to Holden Caulfield. So you just saw a, like, douchey teenager. Which he is. But if you... But as a 20-something, reading it after the fact, I went, Oh my gracious, this is a 40-year-old man nailing what it feels like to be an insecure teenager. It's incredible yeah, that that happened. so true. I get if you just don't like the voice, but wow. Yeah, that is that is a skill. Mm-hmm. That is a super, very cool skill. Yeah. Like the, I like that a lot. Your John Greens. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not personally a John Green man. Me neither. Like, just the stories aren't for me, but he is good at what he does. Right. 
Mm-hmm. In his avenue. Mm-hmm. I agree. So you did theater pre-Shakespeare, though? Like, pre-working with Shakespeare? I did, It's like yes. high school? High school theater. Um, looking back at dates, I was four years old, and I remember being at church and seeing the little musical that they did mm. at, in the spring, and I, like, leaned over to my mom in the middle of the thing and was like, when am I going to be old enough to do that? Nice. I remember that. And, like, looking back at when they did that musical, I must have been four, which is really funny that I have memory from when I was four. Yeah, that's unusual. Yeah. Although you're an older sibling. Older sibling, right? Oldest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's mm-hmm. one, too? Yes. Is it all, are you all sisters? Yes, we are all sisters. Okay. Yeah. So you have two sisters? Mm-hmm. I think I was confused because, you know, we're friends on Facebook, so yes. I see the pictures pop up. Yes. You all have similar faces. Yeah. So I was confused how many there <laughs> might be between the three of you and your mom. Yeah, we, we look very much alike. Mm-hmm. It's very funny. Um, but yes, so yeah, um, but I do, I remember from a young age just wanting to do that. Yeah. And I think the first the first actual play I was in, aside from like music, church musicals, was I was in the pit orchestra in eighth grade for Beauty and the Beast. Oh, man. I did that. And that was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just, I've always loved being involved in the theater. And I yeah. did, I was on stage some and... In the pit orchestra, some. See, my my senior year, I was the assistant music director huh. of the thing, and that's when I was kind of like, I guess I had realized that throughout my entire experience, I wanted, I had so many thoughts and opinions about the music, and that right. was like, you know, obviously the drama was incredibly important, mm-hmm. but for me, it was like the music is one of the avenues through which the drama is conveyed, yeah. and so I want the music to be great. And that's so. The thing. That's the thing, when you watch particularly, like, indie films Mm -hmm. and things, if sound quality or music is wrong, everything feels wrong. Right. Even if the rest is good, because that's so present in the back of your mind. It is, and it really is such a back-of-the-mind thing for most people. For Mm -hmm. me, it's more of a front-of-the-mind thing, because this is my job, but, like... Well, first of all, like I will, I will always ask my friends what they think about movies afterwards. I'll be mm. like, oh, and like the score during this part or something like that. And a lot of people won't be able to be like, yes, I remember the musical things that were happening during that moment, but they will remember what they felt. Exactly. And the music like bypasses the logical center of your brain. I feel like and goes just straight to the emotional and like almost spiritual side of yeah. watching something. And like, how how are you absorbing it? How is it? making you feel mm-hmm. and the music it's most of the time telling you how to feel yeah or making you notice things like i was just watching stranger things mm-hmm. season three and there's a lot to say about being at that fourth of july carnival and just having the happy carnival music while people are getting shot yes and yeah the emotional dissonance is exactly. very intentional so you notice it and it puts you on edge yeah. and so like you know that's one thing where it's like it's the opposite mm-hmm. of what the characters are feeling. But I think sometimes when it is exactly what the characters are feeling, you don't hear it as much as feel it. Yeah. And that is definitely one of my goals when I try to mm-hmm. score things. And that's one of the really cool things about collaborative media, yeah. like a theater or a film, is that one of two things can happen to make it really good. You can either have a director who knows exactly what they're going for and surround themselves with people who are good at it, mm-hmm. or a director who's more open and allows the people to shine in their individual realms. Right. Is like one thing that occurs to me. Have you ever seen 2001? I have not. That's fair because it's a time. <laughs> it's a time. 
it's very long and I, it's very easy to fall asleep because so much of it, it it's weird because it's less a film and more like a two and a half hour concert painting it's, wow it's okay. very strange interesting yeah it, it's unlike any other film that exists but there's a lot of intentionality with how Kubrick chose music yeah I've heard yeah. this like using uh, you know the spec Zarathustra and Blue, mm-hmm. the Blue Danube Waltz which were not well known pieces of music before that movie whoa interesting and that became part of like the cultural knowledge yeah but also there are specific moments in that film when really intense things happen like the choice of a computer to murder a man or someone really trying not to die in an airlock and because partly because it's space and it makes sense and partly by choice there is silence yeah. There's nothing telling you how to feel. You have right. to decide how you feel about what's happening. Right. Which, which is, is so cool. Yeah. And it's very, and that's another, that's another great point. Things that I, I think about when I'm scoring something mm-hmm. because it is up to the director and the composer to decide when there should be silence. Yes. And that is such an interesting conversation because like there's, um, I don't know, like, in, when I was scoring Julius Caesar, there was, like, a couple scenes that were really funny. Mm. And the director came up and was like, do you think do you think we should score this? And I said no, because we had not established the convention of funny score mm-hmm. in anywhere else, because it's mostly just emotional. Right. So, to me, and he agreed with this, but it would have come off as corny and mm-hmm. not actually as funny. Yeah, trying too hard. To right, exactly. So, and usually the humor in a tragedy or just in a serious movie is a coping mechanism. Right. And so it's the, it's the characters usually not actually saying what they're feeling. And so they're, they're like talking about something that's lighthearted or like something's happening and they're just like reacting to it. Mm-hmm. And then, and so, and so there's an element of like, if the music is going to be showing their true their true feelings and their like deep dark secrets and their depression or whatever, then it probably doesn't have a place in the comedy because then the comedy has to speak for itself because it's like almost a little bit of a veneer. It's an affectation. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. And so scoring it makes it seem more authentic and leaving it alone um, lets people laugh, but also reminds the audience that we're still in a place of, tension mm-hmm. if we cannot be completely comfortable laughing because these characters are not completely comfortable right now and if you're in a place of tension like as a viewer you're waiting for that moment of levity just exactly to, like you're ready to laugh mm-hmm. when it comes so you don't need to sell it exactly es- especially if the performance is good and the script is good that's all you need right right yeah and just yeah knowing being minimalist enough to know when the music is not needed is just a very, very important, um, very important strategy going into scoring anything, film or theater. Mm-hmm. So I think before we jump ship on the theater conversation, um, top three shows, whatever, like whether you've been involved in them or just like them. Ooh. Fascinating. Like, just gut response. You're not beholden to this in a court of law. Okay, 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 okay. Um, hmm. 
As you think, I will point out that I was a who child in Susical as a 10-year-old. Oh, man. It's such a good show. It is such a good show. Man, I love I love Susical. That one. Underappreciated. Dear, yeah. It, that is a great example of just doing, like, nailing the genre and mm-hmm. nailing your, like, exactly what that needed to be. It didn't need to be any bigger or funnier than that. It was exactly what it needed to be. So precious. <coughs> um, okay, okay, okay. I love the musical The Last Five Years. Okay. Have you listened to that? I'm not familiar. Okay. It is written, an, an, originally it was written just to be performed by two people, mm. um, but it's about a couple and you see... You see the woman's timeline start from the end and the man's timeline start from the beginning. Oh, goodness. And um, they are a couple, mm-hmm. and it shows the progression and the devolvement of their relationship right. in a crossing thing. And it's the music's great, mm-hmm. first of all, but the story is just, it's so real and it's so relatable, and I learned so much from it. Yeah. Like, just looking... I don't know, there's just... And it, it was also based on the composer's life. Sure. So it was a, based on a true story, inspired mm-hmm. by true events. So, um, so, so presumably they each start off at either end alone, and then cross paths, and then are, are alone again. Essentially. Essentially. Mm-hmm. Obviously, spoilers, but mm-hmm. that's a very interesting concept. It's super interesting. There's actually, they did a, uh, there's a filmed version of it on Netflix. Mm. Um, so I would highly recommend checking it out. Cool. That's one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one. There is, let's see. So there's a play called These Shining Lives. Okay. That I read in college and then got the opportunity to score last year. Hmm. And that was just a milestone for me. I was on top of the world because mm. I read it and I was just like crying alone in my room because it's just so beautiful. But that is the story of women who worked in the 1920s in a watch factory that made glow-in-the-dark watches huh. with radium paint. Yeah, I was about to ask. Yep. Mm. And first of all, like just to the general public, like people thought that radium was good for you. So like people were actually taking like radium vitamins. Yeah, I don't like, know how I, much. I think it was a lotion at one point. Probably. Which is insane. Mm. It's crazy. But basically these workers were lied to about the safety and about the risk. And it's just this, it's this beautiful story of that mostly focus it focuses on, on four girls but namely just one Catherine Donahue and, and that's they're all real people mm-hmm. and just shows her life and her um it's it's fascinating because at the beginning it's like it's a dream for all of these women to be paid to do this right but they're literally ingesting radium like they're, they're supposed to lick the little brush that they paint the numbers with on the watch faces right and Man, so it just, it goes over the course of, like, 15 years, and by the end, all of them have forms of cancer, mm-hmm. and Catherine is the worst. And if, you, um, if you've seen Chernobyl mm-hmm. on HBO, it shows you a little glimpse of what radiation can do to the human body. Yeah. And all of these women um, met terrible fates, but were fighting through it, and Catherine sued the company and it ended up going to the supreme court because the company would not give up wow and um when she finally won in the supreme supreme court there was a law enacted that 
essentially held employers responsible for their workers' lives, so their workers' health. So this is the beginning of OSHA, essentially. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so this play is just strikingly gorgeous. It tells it in such a beautifully artistic and, like, human way. And then just the story is incredible. Mm. Oh, man. So that's that's definitely high, high up there. Mm. Number three. Hmm. Do you want to shoot for, like, a nostalgia, comforty one in terms of just, like... Ooh. Yeah, that. We love it. Because <laughs> I was waiting to see if Wicked came out again. Because that was well, mentioned earlier. Don't want to, like, lead you into a conclusion. No, I know, I know, I know. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. For the nostalgia pick, it would either be Wicked or Les Mis. Yeah, fair. Um, we do a tied third? That's, I think, legitimate between those two. <laughs> okay, I mean, they're so great. Those are both, um, of course, very well-known musicals. But, like... Wicked, I just remember leaving the theater and I was just, I was in a state. I was in a state and I just sat on my bed like for a week afterward just thinking about, I don't know what, I just, I think it was just like the themes in it about like, like looking at a story differently, Mm -hmm. also the power of media and changing people's perceptions about an otherwise good person. Yep. And um, the music was incredible, of course. Even Schwartz. what a kills man. it, kills it. Um, man, Stephen Schwartz done so much good mm-hmm. theater. And so that was probably like my favorite production I'd seen to date when mm. I saw that. And then Les Mis has the beauty of the score. Also, just I think like the story is just so inspirational that we're still telling stories about these college kids that decided they were going to stand up to the French government yeah. and lost. But like we're still remembering their story and learning from people and just like the story of Jean Valjean like going like everything he went through and like the ways he kept fighting and just like the determination of human spirit and also just like the heavy um spiritual overtones in that book and like what does it mean to be a good person like like the thing that set Jean Valjean on his path was that priest being like you deserve grace you deserve good things and um, I'm going to forgive you for what you've done to me, mm-hmm. um, which was not terrible. But, you know, I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to offer you forgiveness because I think you deserve it. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time that it ever happened to him. And that changed one prisoner's life. I think someone who had, was just a normal person and then through imprisonment believed a lie about himself, that he was worthless and that he was a criminal and a terrible person. And then I think about how much that could be applied to just people that are incarcerated now here in America and like all the lies that they've been believing about themselves for so long and just seeing like what Jean Valjean made of himself throughout his life. Of course this is fictional, but like, yeah. just, ugh. I've never seen anyone reinterpret something like a lame is or almost anything that's not, that is quote modern theater mm-hmm. as with Shakespeare. But of course now I'm thinking of like if Jean Valjean did we one time. Right. Who? Who knows? Who who knows what you get? Yeah, I I am so for all of the the reinterpretation and modernizations of these classic works of literature. I think it is so cool. I mean, Rent. That's what Rent is. Rent the musical. Yeah. is a modern retelling of La Boheme, which is an opera. Is it? Oh yeah. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. That's cool. Which is why there's a song called La Boheme. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And it's the same like. 
it's truly just about the exact same plot hmm. and the same types of characters. Just like, what does a uh, performer who might be a prostitute look like in the 90s? Right. What do people that are struggling to pay rent look like in the 90s? And then, like, you yeah. know, add in that whole layer of HIV and that mm-hmm. outbreak and crisis and stuff like that. But, like, it's the same, the same story. Yeah, it looks like that guy from Star Trek Discovery. Wait, what? Anthony Rapp's on the new Star Trek show. Oh. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's funny. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, I would love... I have never really thought about this. I'd love to see what the popularity of Les Mis as a story was like before the musical. Because obviously, right. it's, it's Victor Hugo. It's mm-hmm. a, a hugely important work that is very dense and large and includes a lot of things about sewers. <laughs> Because, man... We love you, Victor. I would love to see if there's, like, a down... uh, Presumably a downtick, but how large of a downtick of people caring about that novel Mm -hmm. and then how much of an uptick after the musical. Right. I don't know. I've not thought about this until this moment. Me neither. I know I read it in school. some homework for the listener. Yeah. Go do some research, because we're not going to right now. But, um... I read it in school before I even knew the musical existed. Mm. And then I remember just looking up. I was like, I wonder if someone made a musical for this. (laughs) Literally. Literally. And I, because I was doing a book report on, um, like, specifically Jean Valjean dragging Marius through the sewers and stuff like that. And just, like, focusing in on that scene. I was like, man, if someone wrote a song around this, dang, that would be a powerful song. And I looked it up, and then I saw there's a musical, and I was just, like, scrolling through Wikipedia, and then, like, whenever a song happens, like, in the plot, like, in the plot summary, it'll be, like, in parentheses with a highlight. And so I clicked on it, and I searched Bring Him Home. I remember being alone downstairs at, like, 12.30, finishing this book report, weeping, listening to this song. That whole show. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Mm. What even? Mm. (laughs) So... I, yeah, I don't know. I don't... I know it's classic literature, but I wonder... Yeah, I wonder how much it was just, like, another piece of classic literature and not as popular before the advent of the musical. Right. So this seems like a decent transition out of musical theater. <laughs> uh, if I remember correctly from the one gen ed class we had, <laughs> I feel like one of the recurring topics uh, of just general conversation was Disney-related. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had a great table. We did. So, uh, for reference, the one class we had together was a year-long group-focused class, like our Cornerstone class, where it was like five or six groups of four or five people. Uh-huh. Which could have gone so much worse. It really could have. And I feel like we probably had the most fun. I think so. And I remember I just, like, walked up to this table that was, at that point, all guys. Yes. And was like, hey, y'all look like fun. <laughs> I still wore a fedora back then. <laughs> true. Yeah. That's true. That's Hopefully that won't come up literally every episode. That did come up last episode. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Fedora. But, uh, but yes, man, Disney. Mm-hmm. Disney is a def- that's been a, it's been a love of mine for a long time. Of course. The thing that I like to talk and ask people about Disney related, what is your pick for like your favorite underrated like the one that you feel mm. is an underrated. That's Disney very movie. easy, Hunchback. Thank you. Bringing us back to Victor Hugo and Steven Schwartz. And Steven Schwartz. <laughs> Com- we combined <laughs> both of your nostalgia answers into a super baby. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. It's <sighs> so true. Hunchback, mm-hmm. man, listener. If you have not watched Hunchback recently, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? I'm serious. Like, ugh. 
I can't, I can't, there's one scene that was added for levity that should have not been added. What, the gargoyle song? Yes. You don't like the gargoyle song? Oh, this, this is like, you know how people, based on generation, they hate Ewoks or they love Ewoks in Star Wars? This is the dividing line of Hunchback fans of whether they hate the gargoyles or not. Oh, gosh. I don't hate the gargoyles. Actually, they're a very funny thing, but they had, they gave them a song. They did. They, did they gave that. them a song, and it's just, it's first of all, it's a regurgitation of One Last Hope from Hercules. So, <laughs> beyond that. That's a good point. We don't like the song. We as in me. Okay, that's We fair. don't need the song. That's fair. Um, I assume... <laughs> so would you prefer that there had not been a song for levity at all, or just yeah. done differently? Yeah, no song. Okay, because it's, it's a pretty heavy film for is. Disney anyway. Now, but, but what you can do is... Um, okay, have you listened to... Um, I was about to say Broadway. It did not make it to Broadway, but the did cast it? recording, it was not. No, hmm. the cast recording of Hunchback? Not all of it. I've heard some of the parts that were not in the movie. Right. Okay. You should listen through all of it. Hmm. But they did a great job of adding um, not so much levity as um, just like exuberant life or just okay. just fun okay so phoebus has a song when he first comes in that's like supposed to be kind of funny okay and that's a perfect time that's an appropriate time for something that's a little bit more lighthearted because it's yeah. just at the beginning of the story mm-hmm. esmeralda has a very fun song when she's like dancing um for everybody and so like appropriate moments mm-hmm. yes that fit within but no, I don't think we. I don't think we needed that. I think it detracted okay. from the story, and I think it was. It just. It felt having having worked in theater, it felt like the producer came in and the director was like, "Hey, we made this thing," and they were like, "But the kids won't like it." I. That is almost certainly what happened. And as you mention, being someone in theater background, it makes me realize the thing with a lot of musicals, particularly ones with hefty themes or plot. The funny stuff is over by intermission. Almost yeah. always. Yeah. So, and that's definitely post-intermission for that film. Straight up. So that that does make sense when you put it in that context. Yeah. Of, like, normally they're not going to pull you back out of that space. Exactly. But in a, like, Like, there could be a funny scene. Like, like, for instance, in Wicked, mm. there's a very funny scene right after... Um, after Elphaba's sister dies, which is like terribly sad, but then they have like this banter on stage, but there's no music. It's just it's just acted out like they're fighting, but then it just turns really funny, mm-hmm. and it is like it is truly funny, and that's after intermission, and it, and it does bring you out of it for just a second. But I think that's I think that's fine. It's just we don't need a big song and dance number that's like, yay, everything's <laughs> happy now. To your point, actually. Remember, thinking back on the timeline of Hunchback, just before that is the the Court of Miracles, which is such yeah. a funny scene. Yeah, I love that whole bit. Yeah. So that was so if you like, just yank out the gargoyle song, that might actually function. I think so. I that's think a good so. Point. It's like it's just it's it just seemed like it really. And I remember even thinking this when I was a child that <laughs> that scene did not fit. Yeah. It was just, it felt cheap and it felt like an afterthought, which I would most certainly imagine it was because it was not included in the Broadway rendition. But it, which means it's either an afterthought or a, uh, in the minds of the you know composer and lyricist, mm-hmm. God bless them, they're amazing. Yeah. 
Messrs. Mencken and Schwartz, that it was an afterthought to them. Yeah. Even if it was integral in someone else's mind. Sure. Yeah. Just something that I just can't imagine that they, I think they did a, the job that they could have done mm-hmm. was fine. Now, here's the good thing about what we just did talking about Hunchback is by bringing up the most divisive thing about Hunchback, we clickbaited that conversation <laughs> into people actually going, I need to have an opinion on this. <laughs> I will watch listeners. this film. Gosh, it is such a good film, and the themes in there are so relevant. Here's the so one good. thing you have, and one of my friends watched it with us recently said something about the film does not age well. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, in just the way that Esmeralda is treated. And I was like, we have to, we have to talk about this because here's the thing. The people that are saying negative things to her are the bad people. Yeah. This is what we call the point. Right. So, so after, and so anyways, everything that the villain says is bad. Everything. Yeah. Literally everything. So, and and purposefully, they have him sitting on this religious high horse, mm-hmm. and there's some fine lines in what he says. And, like, there's one of my, one of the best parts of it is, like, and God shall smite down the wicked yeah. in his fury, and mm-hmm. then he is smitten down. It's so good. It's great, because yep. it's like, yeah. And it was such an interesting and intentional choice to slightly alter Frollo's character, like, between... Mm-hmm book and movie right. where like he's some kind of religiously empowered judge in the movie right. as opposed to being just a priest exactly yeah which i think was a cool um i imagine they did that knowing their audience yeah. was very christian in the 90s still or, is or at least a, a big section of it would right. be and they would like kind of turn maybe turn some would turn themselves off which is not a good thing. Agreed. But others would it would become a barrier to the rest of the story. Sure. So by having someone who is still very openly doing these things for religious reasons, but is not really of the cloth, that right. feels like a good middle ground. I think so too. And then it allows there to be a good priest character mm-hmm. the throughout the entire thing. Stop! Cried the Archdeacon. David Ogden Steers. He's so sweet. David Ogden Steers, rest in peace, because he died like, Six months ago? Yeah. Something. Kind of the, the good luck charm of the Disney Renaissance. Yeah, truly. He was Cogsworth. He was, yeah, and he was the voiceover at the beginning of yes, Beauty, Beauty and the Beast. Beast. Naturally, he was the narrator. He was the archdeacon. He was... The guy in Pocahontas. The bad guy. Oh, yeah. I forgot he was... Uh, he, he was Ratcliffe. And, Ratcliffe. And he was also, like, Ratcliffe's man. Like the the, no the skinny way. dude. He You're was both, kidding. I know. I, I didn't, didn't know that. I didn't know that until I rewatched oh it in college. Oh my gosh. And that's amazing. That's so funny. It makes it so much better. It is incredible. Any other supremely underrated Disney films? I already mentioned Atlantis, so I will spare everyone listening my diatribe about Atlantis <laughs> and how amazing it is. I do like Atlantis. So good. Um, <laughs> Some of the older ones don't get talked about as much. Yeah, they right. should. Like your Robin Hoods. Because I love Robin Right. Um, I think, I mean, I think there's something to be said about Fox and the Hound. <sighs> yep. No, like, I, I, I agree with you. That's one that people, you shouldn't be force yourself to like something. I shouldn't say people should like something, but I don't get why people don't. Right. It's so different. Yeah. It's just, it's, oh, it's good. And I think, I think just in general, the theme of a movie 
is very important to me. Like mm-hmm. that's something that I really hone in on, and yeah. I appreciate when it's told authentically. Mm-hmm. One of my least favorite things is when it's like we're making a movie about why it's bad to blank or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's it's so there's no artistic thought put into it. Yeah. That, the no relation, subtlety, right? No subtlety. So I respect so much when films can talk about something that's really deep mm-hmm. with authenticity, with uh, nuance, and I think that is what Fox and the Hound does. For sure. And it's it's heartbreaking. Yeah, there's a major so difference. There, there's a major difference between saying this movie is going to be about this. Right. And the flip side of it being we should probably talk about this. Right. And it's kind of not necessarily an afterthought, but we don't really want to touch it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I say subtlety as a good thing. Yes. One of my favorite instances of thematics in a Disney movie that is also underrated is Meet the Robinsons, which is very unsubtle right. about its theme, but sure. they go so far on the other side. Yeah, so true. But they knew, they knew what they wanted. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a cute movie, too. It's so fun. It's sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Disney's a good time. It is a good time. But uh, in terms of other things that seem to always come up in our group in Cornerstone, would not, 10 years ago, would not have been a convergent interest to Disney, but kind of is now, is Marvel. Marvel! Yeah, so yep. true. So Very true. Did you get into Marvel stuff through the films or before that? Only through the films. Gotcha. Truly. And I would say that's still true. I have not really delved into the comics much, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, mm-hmm. I it was really, um, I think the first one that really hooked me was Captain America. It's so good. It's so good. I love it. I mean, I think they kind of like, they, uh, it was just, it was so good. I am a sucker for a good period film. Yeah, and it, it's a skill to have. It is. Like, are you familiar, there's a another live action Disney movie from the early 90s, it might be like 92, called The Rocketeer. Mm, I've not heard of that. It's also based on a comic from the 80s, which was a pastiche of old pulpy comics and serials. But, like, a dude in the 80s made a comic of, like, his love letter to that kind of thing about a, a pilot who finds a jetpack and becomes oh. a superhero. Oh. It's a really good movie, really good comic, and the guy who directed The Rocketeer directed Captain America First Avenger because they said, oh, that guy can do... 30s and 40s. He can do that, so let's get him. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's good. Well, yeah, it felt so authentic, mm-hmm. and it's just... And so, then, and then, like, the end, like, I love... I'm not... Well... Mm-hmm. I was gonna say, I don't... I wouldn't say I love, like, all period films. Like, I don't just, like, go see something because it's a period film, but yeah. I do it. But anyways. When it's done well. When it's it done can well. can be very interesting. Exactly. But I love that, but then I also love time travel so much, so even though he didn't travel through time, he kind of did, like... That whole scene at the end where he wakes up, he's like, I was at that game. I remember just like having chills and was like, oh my gosh. And I didn't know what was happening because mm-hmm. I didn't know the universe. And he walks out and he's in Times Square. And I had just been to Times Square oh, wow. on a school field trip. And I was like, <gasps> so, so that was the first Marvel movie you saw or the first one that you were like, I'm into this? The first one where I was into it. Okay. So mm-hmm. you, you, but were you aware that movies were going to collide at all? It was, I think, yeah, when that movie came out, I mm-hmm. knew that Avengers was coming, and so right. I was like, I should see them. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, um, 
yeah, that was the first. I, I had seen like the ones before that, but I was just I didn't really know they were connecting. <laughs> and then when I realized they were all connecting, because someone told me, I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And then ever since then, man, <laughs> oof. I feel like Phase One, looking back, might be like the one of the fewest. The, none of them are truly bad in Phase One, right. but I think it may be the weakest phase to some degree. I I don't know. Okay, I'm a sucker for a good origin story. Oh yeah. So um, I think yes, Phase Two had a couple misses for me just because I didn't feel as succinct okay oh yeah the 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 world was starting to expand yeah Yeah. and it seemed like they were trying to figure out how to do that and still tell meaningful stories and have good arcs for each character yep and but have them interact with one another right i think hands down phase three has been the strongest phase might well be like here's the interesting thing i uh you know you only being a marvel fan through the movies i was raised on comics like i I was i was going to conventions because my parents are nerds at age five Oh wow! So that must have been huge. What just, just like just the fact that the Marvel's MCU a became a huge thing? It's pretty weird, but I, <laughs> the 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 nerd zeitgeist, like the nerd to being normal. I think Avengers was the hallmark moment of people going, "Oh yeah, it's normal to be a yep. nerd now." Yes, but I, as someone who was raised in it, you could kind of see it coming. Just a few years down the road. Interesting. Yeah. Like, very interesting. When, when Iron Man made so much money, that's when we started to go, oh, this is normal. And it's a character <laughs> we don't even like that much. Right. Because, god, comic book Tony is horrific. I can totally understand why. Because he's not Bob Downey. He, he's not, like, he doesn't have the innate charm to counteract the douchebaggery. Right. 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 But, uh, to your point of Phase 2 being this weird trying to find their footing period. As someone who's been into comics my whole life, it's fascinating to see that in 10 years, the MCU has had the same trajectory and issues that comic books had over 40. Whoa. It's fascinating. Because, That's really interesting. Because the Avengers was like one of the earliest instances of taking like big known characters and throwing them in a book together. Mm-hmm. And so in the same token, the Avengers movie was the first time anyone had ever tried that. Mm-hmm. And so by the point after that being, well, what does that mean for their individual things? Shouldn't they be interacting now? Right. The same thing happened in the comics, where when you get into the 80s and 90s, you had the, what uh, people refer to as event comics, where like big overarching things like Civil War or uh, Secret Invasion, which is all the scroll stuff, which may be where we're going because Captain Marvel. Interesting. We don't know. Maybe the Russo's done. I will say, I, w- I didn't love Captain Marvel, the movie. I love her. She's super cool. The um, movie did not super land for me. I've been hit or miss on actually going to see them. Really? For like the last several. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Interesting. We, we can get to that. Okay, okay, okay. But event comics, uh, you know, the idea of like a big event happening to everyone in the world. And so every one of their mm-hmm. books ties into it. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So like cool. the ripple effects going out. It's sure. cool in theory, but... From for the fans, it's always been really difficult because do I have to buy fifteen books mm-hmm. to get the whole story? Right. Where the right. MCU, because it's like maybe ten movies in a year, that's easier mm-hmm. than buying ten books a month and keeping right. up. So it's kind of right. a better, more crystallized version of that, but it still had the growing pains, which is fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it was I just remember like 
specifically Age of Ultron did not land yeah. for me. It and, just yeah, that it was a weak one in general. Yeah, but I think it was. I felt like Avengers was like honeymoon movie. Mm, the good. first time we see everybody together and they are just having fun, and we've got these really strong characters that mm-hmm. know exactly well. They think they know exactly who they are. We yeah. see them grow, but mm-hmm. um, at the time, yeah, exactly. We all but they were just very, they were very well written, and the plot was very fun and mm-hmm. cool to keep up with. And so Ultron came in with like a little bit lost novelty, I mm-hmm. suppose, of yeah. the whole concept of them all being together. Because I think that was a lot of what was so fun about Avengers: yeah. is your first interactions. Doth mother wear no thou wearest her drapes? <laughs> Remember, I just I like spit out my drink when he said so that, good. and like so we've lost. We lost a little bit of that, and I yeah. think they were trying to figure out, like, how do we make this interesting? How, it's something to live up to. Yeah, very like, much. Like, like nothing else. Not, I'm not, like, I am the last person to be, like, I could have done something better. So I don't yeah. even know. And, you know, and the other thing which is so interesting about working in theater is you see how many revisions happen throughout the process. Yep. And you see, like, okay, this is a director error, or this is a, like, thing. looking at things in, like, this is a script error. Like, the movie isn't bad, or this scene isn't bad, but the script is suffering. Right. Or, like, or the acting actually isn't that good in mm-hmm. this scene, but usually for Marvel, it's not the acting, that, if that's no, a problem. Typically. So, it's usually, like, this. if anything's loose, it's the screenwriting, or maybe just the entire direction of the movie, Yeah, I and, would say. And the craziest thing about the MCU is, like, make, getting a movie made, bar none, <laughs> is hard. Yeah. Like Edgar Wright, uh, you know, phenomenal director of Shaun of the Dead and many other amazing films, tweets about this not infrequently, where like tr- sort of to calm people down from hating things just for existing. Yeah, that's so uh, important. Man. Yeah. Uh, just pointing out like it is this level of hard to get a movie made. Making it good yeah. is another step. Right. Right. And to that point, like working within. A system with so many checks and balances like the Marvel Universe has now developed, magnitudes harder. Yeah. Magnitudes harder. Sure. And going back to Joss Whedon, earlier discussion, like he made Avengers 1, and as soon as I heard he was making it, I went, that makes amazing sense. Because what he does incredibly well are ensembles. Yeah. Like, that's the great thing about, you know, sure. your Fireflies and your Buffies. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've watched either of those. I haven't. But I've watched... A little bit of Buffy, but I I know that yeah. to be true about him, mm-hmm. which was so necessary. Yeah, that's why it was so strong. But like, and you know, listener can Google this to their heart's content. He got real burned out on Ultron. Like, it seems like because Avengers did so well and everything became so much more interconnected from Phase Two on, mm-hmm. it was so much more of a process, right? That just like wore him down, and so many approvals mm-hmm. that you need. And like I, I think Disney took a chance with Black Panther. Yeah, they and did. And they handed over the reins. Mm-hmm. It seems like to, to a new guy. To a new guy, but it seemed like they were like, "We want you to make this authentic." And boy, did he! I really like that one. Like, I love it. Like the story, I think there's a lot. Like one of my friends pointed out how similar it is to Thor in some. Wait, like the the original Thor. Yeah, I mean, but there's a checklist for every Marvel origin movie now, and I know. that's not a bad thing because yeah, you can true. still excel within a formula. True, and they did. Yeah, but yeah, artistically, at, uh, the performances, 
um, the general direction of the movie. Like, everything was really strong. And they set up these characters that became huge. Yeah. And I don't think it was... It was not just because it was a new, unexplored territory of, like, this, like, Afro-techno, like, society. I think that was cool and novel and, like... It it definitely owes some of what some of the pul- the the popularity to the fact that it was like a black superhero, but it wasn't just because of that. It was a great movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it if it only had the diversity, that would have cashed checks for a few weeks, right? Not for months, right? Exactly. It was a fantastic movie mm-hmm. that didn't rely on the diversity card because no. I think that could have been easy for Disney to do if they were just. Phone really in, yeah. exactly and but we've seen that before mm-hmm. and it doesn't work it just doesn't it just doesn't work because it's inauthentic so they handed over the reins and that gave a whole new flavor mm-hmm. to the MCU that I think was I mean I mean, it went to the Oscars yeah. you know like oh I, I can't say enough good things about that movie and mm-hmm. that's so so yes there is a flavor to maintain within the within the universe mm-hmm. but stuff like that, shapes it yeah and then like to another degree thor ragnarok was a great way of breaking out of a little bit of a rut for thor's character yeah and the movies because they were they were fine for me yeah exactly they yeah they were fine Mm -hmm. but ragnarok brought this new flavor that also kind of connected it with guardians yes too and so, like, and, you know, I guess I should have started with just saying Guardians brought its own authentic yeah. new flavor to the MCU. That was the first weird one, I'd say. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, of course, the music was very mm-hmm. important in that. Yeah, I, I love pointing out to people who are not comic book people, that's not a thing of Star-Lord's character in the comics. That, Interesting. That, that is purely <gasps> a James Gunn for the purpose of that Did film. I know that? Thing. Ooh. Like, to my knowledge... Comic book people, I haven't read all the Star Lord. Just, just don't come at me if I'm wrong. But I'm pretty sure. <laughs> That's fascinating. And before we get away from the diversity discussion, do you just want to toss out for the listener? Diversity for diversity's sake is a good thing. That of should course, happen. Of course, of course. But there's a big difference between diversity for diversity's sake, which is good, and phoning it in, which is saying, yeah, people will get pissed off if we don't, and not giving the creative reins to people who understand exactly. the subject. Well, that's that's the whole thing, mm-hmm. because we've seen that for years and years and years and years. The All entire, of the 90s. Yeah. The creative team is white. The creative, like, the producers are white, mm-hmm. and they're American, or maybe British, or whatever. Yeah. And they're phoning it in because it's a life they've never lived. Mm-hmm. But when you actually make the creative team, when you, when you hand over the reins to the people that can tell an authentic story that are not, you know, white Americans, mm. then that's when you get good stuff if you want to tell that type of a story. Yeah. So, like, you know, I think we've seen a lot more diversity in casting, which is great, mm-hmm. but what we need to work now more on, I say, is diversity behind the camera mm-hmm. and behind the scenes. And, and from production staff. Exactly. Yeah, because, like, like the, the not necessarily... It'd be nice if the money side, but also the overseeing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, if, like, think think about how many elements there are to a movie. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, there's cinematography, costumes, music, script, editing. direction, editing. Editing does not get talked about enough. Yeah, seriously. There's so many levels. And on every level, there's artistic license. Mm-hmm. 
there are things that you would you would pick up as an editor that are important to you that might not be important to other editors. Yeah. And so, like, and same with music, same with costuming, same with cinematography. And, like, so it's one thing, it's great to be casting diverse, but, like, we also have to give power, like, actual directing power to people that are not white. Yeah. And not white males. <laughs> and I think we're starting to see a, a bit of a turn. We're starting. Yeah, and I think it's great. It's like the farewell's doing pretty darn well right now. Yeah. Which looks like a tearjerker. Uh, yeah. Seriously, I am so excited about that movie. Uh, Crazy Rich Asians made so much money. Sure, and that yeah. was a, that was a fun um, that was a fun exploration of kind of like calling out tropes and yeah. stuff like that. But it was from a director who was Asian. Exactly. You and know, that, that's my thing that. Um, do you, do you do any of the DC movies? Not really. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, you can do either. You can do both. You can I've do seen. Either. I love Wonder Woman. Wonder See, Woman was great. That's my thing. Um, I I didn't love Wonder Woman. It didn't do it for me super well. But uh, and part of that was it felt like for me personally, I get why people loved it. Uh, it felt like kind of generic superhero movie. But if you can have Shit. generic superhero movie that makes hundreds of millions of dollars starring a woman. Yes. Sure. We did it. Absolutely. Like, the, when the generic movies have a non-white male lead, cool. Yeah. It's Sure. Yeah. So yeah. That, that was my takeaway was, like, I'm glad that exists for that reason, if nothing else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Interested to see what they do with the next one. Yeah. Yeah. 1984. I think it'll be, from all the promos I've seen so far, it looks like it's going to be artistically really fun. Mm -hmm. So, I'm interested to see what what issues she's dealing with yeah how it lines up and the only wonder well most of the wonder woman that i've read is from the 80s and that was sort of a period of reinvention for the dc universe as a whole interesting i'm interested to see if they bring some of that in i don't really know yeah because like huh? the og wonder woman stuff was mainly fighting nazis sure so yeah would also going into that movie didn't know it was going to be world war one yeah. That's very cool. Interesting. Yeah. That's different. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we I don't agree. talk about World War One. Right. And like how crazy and I think it was so cool that they hit on that they didn't know there was gonna be a World War Two. And all she knew is that the world was at war mm -hmm. and she needed to help. And like this was the first time they had seen like the world had seen warfare and like mass destruction at this level and like just grappling with that. Yeah. Oof. But a lot of those themes and ideas of like there's something wrong in man's world that I need to help with. That, that's right. very much what the, the 80s, uh, for comic book nerds, writer-artist George Perez run of Wonder Woman was, but it was set in the 80s. Mm, interesting. Yeah, and like her main adversary was Ares, as in the Wonder Woman movie. Yeah. So. Interesting. Neat stuff. Don't know what they're going to do with the next one, since we already kind of covered some of that. Right. Did Remus Lupin die at the end of that movie? Yeah. Oh, okay. Right? I forgot. I forget too. That was the big fight, wasn't it? It was. Oh no. I will say that, that one, that fight was the only part that felt a little like, <laughs> Remus was real CG. Very CG. Man. It was good to see that actor again. Yeah, it was Hello. fun. It was fun. And I very much did not see it coming that he was no, Ares because was a good turn. he was Remus Lupin to me. Yeah. So sweet. He's it's hard not to love him. Yeah. Yep. Mm. That was fascinating though. Well, yeah, it, it, but it is super interesting to me that some people are kind of exclusively Marvel film people. Yeah, I just and I there's didn't, nothing I didn't wrong mean with that. To be, but I saw. Let's see. Well, I I consider the Dark Knight trilogy just mm. a separate thing yeah. because it, it is. They're they're not. 
as a longtime comic book person, I, I can the way I think about those is they're not comic book movies, they're not Batman movies, they're Christopher Nolan movies right. where Batman is the thing. Right, I would agree with that. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating. I love that that exists. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when I saw like Man of Steel, it was fine. It's the, I do think it's the best Superman movie that's existed. What? Okay, well, maybe. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, like... Are you thinking Chris Reeve or... Yeah. <laughs> I guess those movies are very corny when you watch them again. Yeah. But they're classics, too. I love Christopher Reeve as Superman more than right. I love those movies. It's the way I will say that. I think that's probably how I feel, too, to <laughs> be honest with myself. But he's real good, and now he's getting deep-faked onto Henry Cavill's face. What? P- people have taken, like, Justice League footage of Henry Cavill and put Christopher Reeve on it. You're kidding me. It's a thing. It's oh, like the people putting it's like the people putting Harrison Ford's face on what's his name in the solo trailer. It's crazy. Oh my gosh. It's terrifying and cool. Deep fake is insane. It's I don't get it. I don't feel qualified to talk about it. <laughs> Quite frankly. Me either. Nope. Uh, I felt like we were going somewhere and somewhere with that. Oh yeah, just in terms of uh, you didn't intend to be a only mar- movie right. Marvel person, right? Um, no, it just I think I just saw a couple DC films that I was like, eh. Mm-hmm. But but as opposed to delving into um, the other Marvel stuff in, in addition to films, correct? Which I really haven't done. Yeah. Do Do you feel like I I rarely get the chance to talk Marvel with someone who is either not a comics person mm-hmm. or not my wife, who I've talked her ear off about comics anyway. <laughs> so, like, so, someone unsullied by right. my not shut up in this. Did you have any drive from watching and really enjoying those to explore elsewhere, or was it like succinctly satisfying to you? Um, I think it was. I think it's definitely satisfying. I, I, yeah, I do I do think it is satisfying, mm. if I'm just being honest with myself. Yeah. It's not something that I feel like a big drive to, like, delve into. Mm-hmm. But there's been, like, little things, like, um, I saw this big, like, a catch-up on, like, all the events leading up to Infinity War, and it mm. was from the comics, and, like, oh. that was fascinating to yeah. me to see, like, different things that they left out of the movie, but maybe hinted at mm-hmm. and was like oh or like this could be setting up this thing and like yeah. that really was fascinating mm-hmm. so i don't know but i do i also like surprises oh yeah i'm a big fan of surprises and and i like i like finishing a marvel movie and being like i really don't know what's coming next right. you know but my favorite thing about comic book adaptations in general as someone who knows a lot of the lore is when they they acknowledge what came before but do something new so that I can be surprised. Mm-hmm. And that's something they, that they do try to do, both in MCU and just, like, especially cartoons. Yeah, I think the, that's great. Yeah, that's always a good time. Yeah. But, yeah. like, Civil War, for me, which was... Civil War was, like, right after I sort of fell off seeing the Marvel movies in theater. I mm-hmm. watched it on Netflix after the fact. And gotcha. Very much enjoyed it. Yeah, sure, which is fine. Yeah. Respectable. You didn't... Did you like that one? Civil War? Yeah. Oh, I love Civil okay, War. Cool. Well, okay, uh, I liked Winter Soldier better. I just, I, for a totally second, I, I conflated the two in my mind. I did like Civil War, yes. for sure. Very fun. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who was around reading comics during the time of the Civil War event in comics, mm-hmm. I liked the movie more. Wow. Because Tony is likable. Because it's so necessary sure. in that storyline yeah. for both sides to, to be, be viable. Yes. And, so agree. And the way that Tony, ha- the, the way that we all perceive Tony Stark in the comics, 
to that point didn't lend us to listening to anything he had to say. I think that's fair. And I think also, while Iron Man 3 was not a great movie, I it was I then felt like the one that was made for my sensibilities in, sure. in terms of like it was different. But I get sure. why people didn't like it. I don't know. But, but, yes. all that aside, everything that he'd seen and like that mother confronting him at the beginning and just like the general... You remember that? Like when someone came up and was like, your technology killed my son. Oh, right. And like that whole thing. And he, and then the weight of Ultron. Mm-hmm. And like all of that. Like you really, like I felt for him during Civil War. Yep. And then, you know, zooming out again, just going back to like how Shakespeare goes, goes back and influences and talks about things that are relatable to our modern world. That movie came out at a time when we were really discussing like gun rights in our country and we still are and we still are and so when i saw that movie i like had to fight back tears in some places just seeing the it's such a hard you know like if if tony is the gun safety and captain america is like i would say the best possible version of this pro second amendment people like just seeing them like argue it out not infringing of rights versus protection of people from uh, misuse of rights. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is the hardest thing. And it's, and it's Winter Soldier as well. We, we, exactly. we led into Civil War very well through Winter Soldier. Right. Right. Exactly. So, be, and then, you know, because, and here's the, yeah, the facet, the great thing about how they built it up, Tony had just seen the effect of um, weapons and the effect of them as superheroes mm-hmm. on people and yeah. was like we need to be kept in check and in winter soldier tony sees corrupt government mm-hmm. and is like the people need to be protected from corrupt government and they can't just be or like, cap sees rather yes yeah. yes yeah sorry no no yeah. just for the sake of the listener yes thank you <laughs> so yeah steve sees how important it is to keep the government in check mm-hmm. because if they have all of this unlimited power they can do with it what they want and if it's in the wrong hands then that's bad and if the wrong hands are preventing good people from doing what they need to do Mm -hmm. that's worse yep that is an eternal question and it's it is it's still a huge question yeah and it's one that i don't quite know how to answer Uh, and that's one of those it's again as with shakespeare one of my favorite things about shakespeare is that he rarely opens a question and gives an answer correct very rarely he presents two really good sides, mm-hmm. which is what I think the strength of Civil War was. Yeah, it's the same idea of if we're telling you what the answer is, then a lot of people who disagree are just gone. Mm-hmm. They will not listen. Right. And a lot of other people who will blindly follow probably shouldn't because you right. have to think about it. Right. If they don't reason for themselves, then their opinion is actually not that strong. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare and the Marvel Universe. Boom! Kenneth, connected. Kenneth Branagh directed Thor for a reason. I hey, guess. hey, you write. He writes sometimes. <laughs> he mainly directs and acts. I, I kind of wish Thor one was better. I do too. It yeah. could have been. I I loved uh, Loki's arc True. in Thor one. I think, and that's what I remember the most of when mm-hmm. I think back. And I haven't seen Thor one in a very long time. Yeah, but. That was very sobering, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, that, that's a case in point, actually, for even when the Marvel movies aren't great, 
the casting is still good because they're casting for a universe. Right. And so the reuse of Hemsworth and Hiddleston over and over again paid off in spades. Yes. Very much so. God, they're both so good looking. They're precious. Uh, I love them. Tom Hiddleston... I, I wouldn't say I'm someone that, like, super hardcore crushes on celebrities, but, like, Tom Hiddleston is my celebrity crush. It's hard for sure. not to when you look at him. It's true, but it's not just... It's it's his demeanor. Yes, and in almost every role. Yes. Like, have you true. seen Crimson Peak? No, I have not. Are you familiar? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yep. yep. There's uh, nothing he, you need to say more about that, because... He, he's yeah. a creep, but he's still Tom Hiddleston. Right. Exactly. Yep. And he's Loki. But he's still Tom Hiddleston. Mm. Well, I think, and I, you know, I don't know how Loki was like in the comics, but like it's kind of the same thing that Robert Downey Jr. brought a humanity mm-hmm. and charm that's not just arrogance yes. to Iron Man. Mm-hmm. And that's what made um, his death so powerful yeah. in this last movie. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, to your point of not knowing what Loki is like in the comics, Obviously, with any comic book character, it's hard to generalize because they're decades old and sure. lots of different people have written them. So on sure. But the, the thing about Loki, which is true in the comics and true in the movies over and over, is that he keeps betraying Thor and Thor <laughs> wants to believe him every time he says he's changed. Poor buddy. And that's the, the, the case in a lot of the comics I've read, too. Yeah. But what Hiddleston brings to the table is where, where when you're reading it, even if the art is really good... Even if the writing is really solid and well-paced, you could still read that voice or interpret that face on the page in such a way that says, why are you believing him, you idiot? Where the the strength of Hiddleston's performance is another layer that can make you care. Exactly. Like, there there are no mediums that are stronger than one another. That doesn't exist. Right. But because theater and film are yet another layer of collaboration from a film or uh, or not from a film but from a book or a comic right there's more chances for people to win you yes that's true that's true and i just think it paints a fuller picture of a human it can do yeah so you know if you're if they do it well it has the potential (laughs) yes 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 so before we started we were talking about like i was kind of catching up with you to see what you've been up to and you mentioned a music ed thing you're doing now yeah Wait, would so, you describe it as music ed? Yes, yes. Well, music ed, um, well, it's kind of split. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is my uh, part-time job that I do when I'm not writing for theater or such mm-hmm. in the theater world. But, um, yeah, it is a company called Quaver, and they do both music education and teaching um it's a subject that's required in most schools now called SEL, which means social emotional learning. And so teaching that through music. Mm. So um, on the music education side, it's a pretty standard curriculum, like learning how to play with um, mallet instruments, Mm. which is very fun. And then like proper singing technique, music theory, their whole website is very interactive. Like just, we can mess around with a baby synthesizer and Mm. like things like that. It's like really, really cool interactive things to do that you can assign to your students. And then on the SEL side, um, it's like people are crafting lessons and then the music department gets the lesson and they say, okay, we need a song for this lesson. Mm. And so, and then the song will always have an interactive element, which is either like talking through something or like, dancing or sometimes they're singing along like Mm. it just kind of depends but like 
I think all of us, I remember so many random factoids or like different things from songs Mm -hmm. from growing up. There's like something about music that like we're saying earlier um, with theater, it kind of bypasses the logic and into like the emotional side of your brain. Yeah. And so like you can digest things and they can stay with you for a long time when it's musical. Mm-hmm. So anyways, um, my role at Quaver is a music editor. So like people will turn in songs, like songwriters will, and I will take those and take the recording and make sheet music out of that and then fix it all up so it looks all professional. Nice. Um, what program are you using? Finale. Nice. Finale is probably best for exactly what I do, which you have to be very specific on the layout because the company has like a certain look they want. Sure. They and have stuff like, like that. a style guide. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's much easier to do in finale than it is in Spalius. Even though I do love Spalius. That's my that was my first notation software that I learned. How to I feel use. like I should say bless you when you say that word. Sibelius? A little bit. Why? No, no just in terms of Sibelius. <laughs> Gosh. That's funny. I've never thought of that before. Um but yeah, so so I I'm a music editor, and then more recently I have started songwriting for them as well mm. occasionally, and um, actually the how I got introduced there was actually just doing studio vocals like mm. recording. They needed someone who could sing in Spanish. Oh nice! And so I did that. <laughs> Why did you get that skill? Uh, well, my. I have family from both sides that is from Peru. Oh, wow. So my mom's father and my dad's mother hmm. are Peruvian. Cool. Mm-hmm. And so um, and that's part of the reason my parents met, which is hilarious to me. Like someone introduced me like, both of you are Peruvian. You should meet <laughs> slash kiss. So, <laughs> um, now keys. Now keys. <laughs> so... Anyways, um, that's always been a part of my upbringing, Hmm. and I'm not fluent in Spanish, but I speak enough to Mm -hmm. get around, and I definitely want to get better. But I think also hearing people speak it my whole life, I um, like the sounds. Like I can, I can do the accent well because I've heard the sounds a lot, which I know is a problem for a lot of American Spanish speakers. They just they don't know what a dental T sounds like, or like. Not closing down like taco, like mm-hmm. we go oh mm-hmm. if you say it, but it's like taco, right. like you know things that they keep the o open. Right. There's no closing. There's no diphthong. But like American English speakers sometimes cannot comprehend that. So like, anyways, because and that's of, giving American Spanish speakers a lot of credit for not just saying quesadilla. Right. Right. Or uh, as one of my friends who used to work at Taco Bell says. Um, and pandas oh. instead of empanadas. So, uh, you know, it, there's it's that. It's an empathic panda. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That panda can read your emotions and knows when to hug you. Right. That sounds like something that would be in an SEL. Listen. How to know when to hug your friend? <laughs> Through empanda. <laughs> Through Oh, gosh. <laughs> Anyways, so, yeah, spoke Spanish to some degree my whole life. And now it was, it was very cool. They just had to have um, someone that could sing a song. And this one was like a little kid's song. Mm. So it had to be very, very involved and like like this, mm-hmm. pero en español, yes. you know. And as as like, though you were in Muzzy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was able to do both of those things. And so I got that gig and that just led to more gigs. And, mm-hmm. there, and then one time they asked me like, 
being someone that uh, can, you know, edit sheet music and can kind of dictate, um, or sorry, notate um, lead sheets and stuff like that. Do you know anyone that could do that? And I was like, yes, and it is me. I am your person. I'm so do that. So, anyways, so I still sing for them as well. But it's, it's a kind of the dream part-time gig hmm. honestly but it's a great company great people fun to work for and the stuff they're doing is just it's good quality and it's in over 8,000 schools in the U.S. Hmm. and um, it's even in some international schools as wow. well and it, uh, it's just quaver.com mm-hmm. quavermusic.com quavermusic yeah is that just q-u-a-v-e-r mm-hmm yes cool. the um it started first as a little TV show that oh. was for music education, kind of like Bill Nye the Science Guy, mm. but for music. And um, one of the, I, I suppose he's the vice president of the company, but um, he was like the lead actor, huh. um, and he's British. Cool. And so um, that's where the quaver came from, because in British music notation dialect, a... So a whole note is a quaver. A half what? note is a semi-quaver. What? Yeah. And it all goes like that. That is the most British nonsense I've ever heard. Yes, but it's it's so British. Like, do you, did you expect anything else? I Honestly, just because of uh, the, the sort of shape that the word quaver makes me think of, I thought you were going to say it was a quarter rest. <laughs> right. Because it wavers. Well, just now in, I'm not in, sure. In I think the... I'm pretty sure a half note is a semi-quaver. Now I'm... Now I'm doubting myself. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I, that's an eighth note. Who knows? I would also like to apologize to like the five British guys I know. Yeah. We're not trying to stereotype you. No. But Your um, slang is funny. I'm sure ours is too. It's, it's just because you're not us. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's where the name Quaver comes from. Our lovely British host. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, all of the British guys I know are musicians, so I'll just have to ask them about that. If that's a word they use, or maybe it's regional. Right, right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Fun. Uh, so how often do you do shows like, uh, at this point? Because you have, when was the last time you did Nashville Shakes? Uh, Nashville Shakes was in January, mm-hmm. and then since then I did a show at Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. and Theaterbug, and Lipscomb. Neat. This year. Mm-hmm. And outside of that, I've worked with the Belmont Theater Company, nice. um, a small awesome theater company called Pipeline Collective. They're wonderful. Hmm. Nashville rep. I'm going to work with um, Studio 10 next year Hmm. on a show at the beginning of the year and Nashville Children's Theater. Cool. So, just kind of like there's a theater here is very um, like a lot of people that frequent, like I guess what I'm trying to say is like there's a lot of interchange. Hmm. So, like a director from Vanderbilt is probably going to be at a National Shakespeare performance or that type of thing. Yeah, so it, it seems like it, it's very collaborative. Yeah, it's not a, word of mouth. Nashville's not a huge city. Yeah, and there's a, a couple predominant things that exist here, right. like mainly songwriting kind of music. Sure. So if any other sphere exists, you know almost everyone within that sphere. Uh, yeah, it kind of is that way. Yeah, which is yeah, it's definitely a lot of fun. It's a very good community mm. here. So, I guess I know at this point I've done about 15 shows, so about five a year, nice. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, and it just kind of like, it comes and goes, and like, beyond that, I've done shows that are, uh, like, been involved in a show, like, I've 
played in a pit orchestra for a couple shows last year mm-hmm. or like was a music director for a show where I was I was just playing piano but I hadn't written the score or something like that so it just kind of varies like anything but <laughs> it's kind of one of those things where I've found relatively consistent work by just doing work good because there's people there and they listen to stuff you do and then you get on new projects mm-hmm. so it's yeah. been it's been a good time yeah theater seems to be one of the sorry if I could go. oh yeah good yeah theater seems to be one of those spheres where if you have a role that you can fill a need that isn't mm-hmm. being on stage sure. or, or directing someone needs you yeah this it is definitely I never wanted to be part of the record industry mm-hmm. songwriting thing because that's very... I respect it, mm-hmm. but like... Um, it's a grind. It's a grind, and it's a... You gotta make a name for yourself, mm-hmm. and like... And I think all that's like a little bit true. Like, you know, during productions, it's definitely a grind, but right. it's a good grind. But um, I feel less pressure to um, market myself, I suppose, and... I've been able to accomplish what I have through just relationships. Sure. And, um, you know, who knows the future holds, and I have things that I want to be working towards, but it's nice to not have, first of all, management that tells you what you need to be doing, but also the pressure to just, I don't know. I feel like there's just a lot of pressure on people wanting to be artists, mm-hmm. and I don't feel that. I feel like I'm, I'm working a job that's yeah. a very fulfilling job, and it happens to be in music, mm-hmm. and that's great. And at any point leading up to that, did you have to do a soul search of finding like the spectrum between art as grind and art as like I only do this for me and I do something else for money? Sure. Yeah. Well, my first year out of college, I took a full time job doing um, it was like customer service for music for like a music part of this company Hmm. and so it wasn't anything creative it had to be involved with music and we had to know the music the company was producing but we were just customer service and And so this was for quaver no this was this was for lifeway oh wow yeah okay (laughs) yes so i did that for just about a year in a year and a couple months um right outside of school and at that time, I was working on the side doing composition. Mm. And that was leading to, like, frequenting 50-plus hours of work week, sometimes approaching 60. Right. So that was a crazy grind. And I think it was during that time when I realized that I could make a living doing, like, theater mm-hmm. and something else that was not full-time, right. at least at the time being. But um, it was, I was doing, you know, I was obviously making money doing theater and putting a lot in savings, which is great Mm. while I was working full time. But I did have that moment where I was like, I need to be doing something I love in some capacity or else I'm going to be unfulfilled. Yeah. And, um, and I don't think that always needs to be a job Mm -hmm. necessarily. And I, I wish more people thought like that. Yeah. Because I think you can be perfectly happy at a full-time job that is maybe not your wheelhouse but Mm -hmm. has fun people, whatever, if you are doing something on the side that feeds your soul. Yeah. If you have a creative bone, you need to be using that 
creative bone in some way. Mm -hmm. Like I can't tell you how many people I talk to that are like in their upper forties or fifties and just like they get so excited anytime they get to do creative projects that are outside of the norm. And I'm like, yes, but think if you had implemented this earlier in Mm -hmm. your life, like you don't, it doesn't need to be your career. Mm -hmm. But if we're like, I think we are all to some degree creative people and you've got to have an outlet. Yeah. And once you take that outlet away, and I've talked to other people, like, where they went through a period of not having an outlet, Mm -hmm. and it surfaces in a lot of times, like, depression for people, just not being able to, like, to pour a creative, to pour out your creative self Mm -hmm. in any way. And at that point, you realize it's not about the money, and it's not about the like building a perfect Instagram page that everybody's going to follow and you're going to become this very famous, whatever. Mm -hmm. But, um, it just matters that you are creating. Yeah. And so that, that I learned that from someone that I was working with at Lifeway Hmm. and he was, and that was the first time I'd ever heard someone say that. And I was like, you are so right. But like, that's what, that's what he did. He worked full time and on the side, he is an incredible painter and um that's something that he's realized just he needs in his life Mm. to create like he needs to create things and when he is creating it is it is good for his mental health it's good for his emotional health and his relationships because he is feeding a part of his soul that is not fed in other ways right uh, remind me what SEL stood for again. Oh, social emotional learning. Right. Uh, to the purpose of that being like understanding what you're feeling and acting on it kind of stuff. Yes. It's, it's the same thing. And like we were talking a little bit before about the way my last year has gone. Yeah. And a lot of that had, for me has been uncovering the, the, the sort of idea that everything that happens in your life and everything you do is energy. Mm-hmm. Whether it's going out or coming in. Sure. And you have to like. I feel like there were so many maxims that were tossed around, particularly about being creative. Like, all of the, you know, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life, which is a lie. That's awful. It's not good. Or the uh, never, or what is it? If you're you're good at something, never do it for free. That's not a good one. Right. But you have to, like, look at yourself and measure out what takes energy away from me and what brings energy back into my life. Sure. And find that balance. For sure. Because if doing a creative thing for money does not deplete your energy entirely and it gives you a paycheck, sure. Mm -hmm. But if it is the thing that you need to return your energy, maybe don't make it your full-time job because that's going to wear you out. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I mean, I mean, currently I'm, I am, half and half yeah. in my life. And it's a very good balance for me. And I don't know what my future will look like. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure that out. But like, it's been, it's been good to have both. Right. Like one that is completely creative and one that is, I would a little bit more lax on the creative side and has enough like practical elements mm-hmm. where I can kind of unwind doing that. Yeah. You know, but still using music and mm-hmm. still all involved with music and training that I received in music school. Yeah. Putting to use, which is great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> using your degree is a novel concept. We like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, as long as, like, the, the people who have a creative drive, the thing to recognize, I think, is 
that drive exists for a reason. Yes. Because yes, yes, yes. Like even if you don't get big or do it all the time, it's because some part of you wants that. Right. And I think that's great. Mm-hmm. And denying that will make you feel worse. Right. You're just shutting down a part of your life that you were meant to live. Mm-hmm. Cool. We went and wound up on an inspirational note. Whew! Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, unless there's anything else you want to talk about, that's about it. I feel like we've hit on a lot. We've also been talking for a while, and there's tacos waiting. That's true. So tacos, tacos are important. Mm-hmm. But uh, before we go, anything you want to plug? Any upcoming shows that you've worked on? Hmm. Like in the nearest future? This will probably go up in maybe two weeks, depending on when Joey can edit. Well, I guess the only thing I can think to plug right now is just my website, I suppose. Um, It's nataliebellmusic.com. And I will put a link in the description to that. Wonderful. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm definitely looking to branch more into film right now. And so... If you are a director that's listening, I'd love to chat. If you've got any <laughs> projects, I'm very interested in like branching into the short film world hmm. here because I know there's a lot of that happening. There is. So that's my next like I suppose challenge to myself to look at. All okay. right. And just a reminder, this is brought to you by Music City Makers, which is a creative co-op that I run with some friends where we make some cool things that we like. So you can check out all the things that we're doing on our Etsy. Uh, which is Music City Makers. We just added some screen-printed tote bags. Or you can follow us on Instagram at Music City Makers or Twitter at Music City Maker because there's a Twitter with the S on it that has not tweeted in three years. <laughs> and I will put that at the end of every episode until they, they uh, until they hear me and acquiesce. 